0: I'm still trying to plug my external screen into the back of my computer this morning. <laughs> such, is, uh, such, such are some mornings. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I'm going to lead off with a question uh, for you to consider. How will you be remembered? How will you be remembered when you die? It's not an if, if. It's not an if question. It's a when question. So short of the Lord coming back before we die, how will we be remembered when we die? So I shared with you yesterday during the broadcast that our brother in Christ and colleague in ministry, Ravi Zacharias, uh, died yesterday in his home in Atlanta following a brief but intensive fight against an aggressive form of cancer. He was 74 years old. Uh, And let me just say this. Today he is born again into a living hope. His life is no longer measured in years but by God's eternal love. So yesterday he died and yet he lives. So how can that be? He lives now because he lived in this life, in, by, through, and for the one and only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, that's how it is that Ravi Zacharias lives today, even though he died yesterday. So CNN, Fox, every other major news reporting outlet paused to take note of the death of this one individual. Um, more importantly, they paused to take note of his life. And so how will you be remembered when you die? Um, I really, uh, I mean, we could spend all morning, frankly, reading tributes and testimonies to Ravi Zacharias. There are already thousands of them posted online. Maybe you have one of your own, something that he said in one of his broadcasts, um, something that he said in, you know, maybe in a live appearance where you had the opportunity to, uh, to be with him. That changed you, that changed the way you thought about something, that changed your uh, approach to the conversations of the day and certainly your approach to God. Um, I just want to read part of one this morning and, and not because of the person um, who gave it, although she is a, a young, very high profile woman. Her name is Kaylee McKinney and she is now the White House press secretary. Um, but I want to read it because of what she says. So White House Press Secretary Kaylee McKinney, uh, she got emotional while discussing the passing of Ravi Zacharias. She says it's a huge loss. I know my dad would say to me that Billy Graham was the great evangelist. Well, I think Ravi Zacharias is the great apologist. She paused to wipe tears from her eyes during the CBN interview yesterday. Uh, And when asked where those tears were coming from, she said, well, it goes back to my days developing When God was developing my faith at Oxford University in England, quote, to have someone from an academic place as an apologist to equip you with these arguments where you didn't have to check your brain at the door when you became a Christian, where there's this intellectual foundation for everything that we believe, for prophecy, for the human cell, the amazing creation of the human body and all of its complexity and the planet and the universe. Ravi Zacharias put a philosophical and academic rationale for the heart that I had for Christ. And that gave me the ability to go to Oxford where there are renowned atheist scholars who try to say there's no intellectual undergirding for Christianity. Ravi Zacharias, she continued, who happened to have an office at Oxford, was the person who provided for me a counterweight, the intelligence behind why we believe what we believe. Um, how is your faith influencing others today today? particularly people in the next generation, people like Kaylee McKinney, who one day are going to have jobs like hers and opportunities like hers. Don't you want to know that a generation from now and two generations from now, there's going to be a Christian as the White House press secretary again? All right. So very few of us have the kinds of um, exposure maybe that Ravi Zacharias had during this lifetime, but we all, we all are ambassadors of the same kingdom, agents of the same grace, ministers of the same gospel for which he lived, in which he died, and in which he now lives again in glory. We're going to continue our conversation this morning with Michael Austin, author of God and Guns in America. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Me now, Michael Austin. He is a professor of philosophy at Eastern Kentucky University. The author of numerous books, uh, he writes. Uh, one of the locations where he writes is uh, Psychology Today. He's got all kinds of um, of articles related to maybe the intersection of what I would describe as just ethics and real life. And so he's here today to talk about his new book, God and Guns in America. Michael, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
1: Thank you very much. It's good to be here.
0: Well, it's um, it's nice to have you with us. Okay, so you know this is clearly a controversial topic, right? So, yeah, um, right. right. So let's just um, let's just brief people in. Um, give them give us the bottom line. Um, in terms of the the conversation related to gods and guns in America, because we could have an extremist conversation in either direction, and that's not what you're trying to provoke.
1: Yeah, that's right. The bottom line from a Christian point of view, is I argue that we should should be peace builders. So we should um, do all we can to live peaceably with others. And then out of that means we can protect individual rights to own a gun, but also reduce gun violence. So I want to do both of those things. I don't want to land on one extreme or the other. And I think that's where the best arguments lie.
0: Okay. So in order to arrive at that point, one of the things that you do is you just explore all of the range of, of, of sort of approaches to this conversation. So give us sort of the most extreme approach on both ends, and then tell us as Christians how we get to that better place where, you know, no matter which view I might hold, extreme or not, I really do want to live peaceably with my neighbor.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think— you know, on one extreme is the idea that—and I've heard people defend this—that there's a right to own a gun, to bear arms, and that it's an absolute right, that it can't be forfeited. It's literally inalienable, and I think that's wrong. And we already recognize that, I think, not just as Christians, that not everybody should be able to, to own a firearm, but, of course, the Supreme Court in the U.S. agrees with that. On the other end is, is the what I'd call the extreme pacifist view, right, where all violence is immoral. And I have some sympathy to that, but I think as Christians, we can see that in between these two extremes in a fallen world, right, sometimes loving my neighbor means defending my neighbor, right, even even using a weapon. Um, and so what I want us to do as Christians, and it's hard to do, is step back from sort of the cultural heat that's generated around this and, and try to bring some light to it, looking at scripture, looking at uh, of Christian thought about this, and, and really trying to Place our th- ourselves under Christ's authority and the Scriptures, and then let that guide uh, our convictions.
0: I'm talking with Michael Austin. You can find him online uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, and um, and at his website michaelw.austin.com. Uh, we're talking about his new book, God and Guns in America. Um, why why did you wade into this debate? Why Why did you, you know, why is this of interest to you?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Partially because I grew up um, in, in really a gun family. I, I tell the story at the start of the book that I owned a gun while I was, uh, before I was born. My dad bought like a $4.22 rifle from TGNY. And if you're old enough, you'll remember those stores. Um, but then I, I became interested because I saw really some bad arguments on both sides. And I thought a lot of people... Their, the strength of their convictions wasn't matched by the strength of their arguments. So I wanted to wade in, look at the biblical arguments and the theological and even ethical arguments for myself and, and develop my position. And I just think we need to have a deeper, better conversation about this. And so I, I wanted to try to foster that through this book.
0: All right. So the book does provide um, that that deeper, richer, more full conversation, particularly if you are a Christian. When we come back, I'm going to ask um, Michael to explain sort of why, um, why this is such a deep debate among Christians, um, how Christians have become so divided on this. And then, um, and then we're going to just going to talk about um, uh, violence in general. And when Christians talk about peace and peace building and peacemaking, what do we really mean? All right, all that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Continue my conversation with Michael Austin. He is the author of "God and Guns in America." We're talking about how we as Christians um, wade into this very uh, controversial debate. Um, for those of us who have guns in our homes or are gun owners, we we know that we have had conversations with others who think that is morally wrong, um, and we have had opportunity to talk about where we live and the lifestyle in rural America versus maybe the threat that people experience guns to be in more urban environments. And so, um, so Michael, talk with us about um, how Christians became so divided on this issue and how Christians can become so divided on this issue. Like what's, what's underneath that?
1: Yeah, I think part of it is because it is such an emotional issue. And even the point you just made about like different parts of the country. So I I own a gun, um, grew up in a gun family. But, you know, if you remember, there was a uh, President Obama, right, talked about he he visited somebody who lived like, you know, 20 to 30 minutes away from law enforcement. And he said, you know, if my family was out here, I'd think I'd own a gun as well just for protection. Um, So, you know, that kind of, that's important to remember, right? It's different depending on where you live. But for Christians, I think, you know, we have views of scripture and Christian thought. And so across the political spectrum, because the Bible doesn't just address guns, obviously, um, we can come up with uh, justifications for our views. And some of those are better than others. But for many people, right, guns aren't just about guns. They're family traditions. They, they're related to how we think of ourselves, even as Christians and Americans. And so it's connected to you know politics, our faith, patriotism, family, all that stuff. So it's very emotional so I think uh, that that can be, you know, really create potential for a lot of division.
0: I think that um, for us, part of the conversation is also that we're a military family. Um, mm. And so that is in the mix for us as well. Um, talk about the Christian view of violence. Um, you refer to peace building. Certainly the Bible talks a lot about peacemaking. Why, um, why is peace and peace building or peacemaking, why is that important for the Christian, and where is that intersection with this conversation about guns and God?
1: Yeah, I think we, we all recognize, you know, from experience, um, from watching the news, that we live in a fallen world where violence is a reality. But I think as Christians, we know that, that that's not God's will, right? Ultimately, you know, not until the new heavens and the new earth when violence is gone, um, you know, that will be a great day. But until then, we live here. But I think sometimes we're too quick to turn to violence as a solution, right? So, so as believers, right, I think it's in Roman, Romans 12, talks about as far as it depends on us, live at peace with everyone. So given that, the Sermon on the Mount, we should do all that we can to foster peace. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll always be successful. But that should be our default, right? We shouldn't just ask, is violence justified here? But we should ask that deeper question. Um, even if it's justified, is there a way to resolve right, this problem or this conflict uh, without violence? So that's what I, I think Christians should seek to do.
0: So I think that um, that highlights uh, a conversation about character. Mm-hmm. What, does, um, what does character have to do with this conversation,
1: yeah, there's some. Honestly, there's some unanswered questions for me, right? So, you know, what does my willingness to kill another human being, right, who's made in God's image, say about my character or do to it? Um, but I think I think what the what I address in the book is not all parts of American gun culture because um, I'm familiar with you know many of those parts, but there is a certain segment that I think sort of the ways of thinking and 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 practicing with guns can undermine empathy, right, our concern for other people. So some training involves you know, developing a quick shoot reflex without thinking about what you're doing. Uh, sometimes we dehumanize others in that culture, right? So people refer to criminals as wolves. Uh, some gun owners refer to themselves as sheep and the rest of us as sheepdogs or not the rest of us. But right? the wolves are the bad guys and the sheepdogs are the good guys. And, you know, people refer to criminals as animals a lot. And um, I'm just concerned about what that reveals and what that does to our character. Because, look, all of us, even the worst of us, are made in God's image, right? And so we've got to remember that and see others as having the same value as us. Now, that doesn't mean we let people do whatever they want or or harm others. But I'm worried that it undermines Christian virtues like compassion and love. And we've got to hold that uh, in balance. A good friend of mine is a state trooper. We've talked about this some, and he's talked about that temptation to to not think of of criminals as right, image bearers of God, and I can see how that would be tough and I just want us to push back against that cultural temptation, I guess
0: which I think leads us into into a conversation about justice and justice justice for all. It leads us into a conversation about criminal justice reform where we see things that are broken and need attention um in our criminal justice system. I think that our response as Christians when something horrific happens because a person used a firearm um, in a way that none of us, none of us would think is appropriate. Um, so these mass, these mass casualty events that, that we experience, um, we have to do more. I mean, this is one of the points that you make in the book. We have to do more than just offer thoughts and prayers. Um, so talk with us about what actual steps will make a difference in terms of gun violence in America.
1: Yeah, I think as Christians, you know, when people make fun of the thoughts and prayers thing, I think we can understand where they're coming from. But we also know that the Bible teaches that, that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So we start there. But you're right, we need to go beyond it. And so I would say first, we should just be the church, right, on this issue. A lot of violence has to do with, you know, desperation, poverty, um, family issues, psychological issues. So the more that the church can can meet those needs in society, you know, help people uh, with those issues, we'll see a reduction in violence. So I want to start there. We should try to build good communities through, through love and service. Uh, in the legal realm, I think one thing that, that, I, that I've discussed with people who are, are strong Second Amendment supporters, some of them think this is good, is a federal, maybe a federal extreme risk protection order, what's more commonly called a red flag law. Uh, several states do this. Maryland's an example. So what that does it allows like a uh, police officers or family members or healthcare professionals um, to make a legal request that that a gun be temporarily removed some from somebody uh, who might be potentially dangerous. At least in Maryland, I, I looked this up recently. Out of the first 300 requests that were made, five of those were potential school shootings. So so that's something. As long as we pay attention to due process, uh, I think could be a really good way to reduce gun violence. And then lastly, not so much with the law, but I think there are really good technological solutions, right? A lot of deaths happen because of people don't store their guns safely, right? So using a gun safe. But, of course, if it's a, a situation of self-defense, um, right, you, you don't have time to open a safe. So there are biometric trigger locks. Um, and I think Christians especially should work at developing really effective non-lethal weapons, because a lot of the motivation for this is self-defense, and that's understandable. Right? We want to protect ourselves and those we love. But if we could come up with a really effective way to do that without killing somebody, it seems that's a, a win-win situation. So I offer other possibilities in the book, but those are three that jump to mind.
0: Michael, thank you um, so very much. This is I think this is very, very helpful. The book is God and Guns in America Michael Austin is the author you can um you can certainly find him online uh Michael W Austin um but you can also um you can find him on Twitter you can find him on Facebook where where's your preferred um, place of interaction with people
1: Yeah they're welcome to uh, check out my website and then on Twitter I think that's uh that's where I interact with people I don't know mostly <laughs> in real Fantastic. life
0: Fantastic well then you and I You and I will interact in real life on Twitter. All right. That sounds good. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. All
1: right. Thank you.
0: All right. I thought it was time for us to get an update on uh, the locust invasion. So Ruth Kramer is going to be back from Mission Network News. She and I are going to talk about um, what is happening in Ethiopia. We're also going to talk about travel restrictions and how those are affecting uh, families. Uh, and then we're going to get an update on places like L- Yemen and Lebanon, um, really, really uh, extraordinary things happening around the world. And sometimes we uh, miss out on those if all we pay attention to are the head- is the headline news here in the United States. So Ruth Kramer going to give us a global perspective and uh, news from the ground from our Christian brothers and sisters around the world. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: When I was growing up, there was a lot of tension in our home. We spent many dinners around the table in frustrated silence. You know what that taught me about dealing with problems? Just avoid them. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. That lesson from my childhood wasn't the best one. The higher the tension gets at home, the easier it is to check out, to stay quiet, or find some convenient distraction. Though it may seem like the easier route, it's doing more harm in the long run. Instead, choose to talk about issues in the home, even when it's hard. Your proactive approach, asking questions, listening to the answer, and sticking with it will go a long way to relieving the tension in your home. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find helpful resources at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store.
2: To
0: boldly go where no one has gone before. All right. Joining us again today is Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. Ruth, I feel like I have missed you. Yeah. Well, have it's we, been, what, four weeks? Has it been? Oh yeah, see, it's been too long. Okay, so I have missed you because my my conversation desire is very high. I mean, in terms oh. of the things I would like to cover with you today. <laughs> yeah, I know it's like six topics. <laughs> I know, I know. So I'll uh, let's pace ourselves. Let's talk about we have we have shared with folks before that there's this locust swarm in North Africa. Talk with us about what you know. Um, and I'm I'm looking right now at a headline at mnnonline.org. Um, and the headline is Locust Disease and Floods Plague Ethiopia. Tell us what is going on.
2: Well, um, you know, in the fall, uh, you had areas of Africa like Kenya, Somalia, um, South Sudan, and Ethiopia that had been struggling with drought. And in and during the harvest season, um, the the issue was that the plants weren't getting enough uh, rain. And then the rains opened up, and and that brought an end to the drought. And so everybody was really excited about that. But the rains also brought with them a, a locust outbreak. And that was back in February when we were talking about swarms that were miles wide and and just how severe that situation is. Now, you got to remember that this swarm of multi-million uh, locusts is going to be breeding and laying eggs. And that's what we're looking at right now. Um, UN Food and Agriculture uh, Organization uh, basically says that – The coming wave, the second wave of desert locusts is going to be 20 times worse than what we saw two months ago because the eggs are hatching this month. And they're anticipating that new swarms are going to form in June and July, which will coincide coincide with the harvest season. It's just really bad timing for all of that. Ethiopia and Somalia are two of the areas that are really more at risk. Um, in terms of the areas that have been hit, just because they were already dealing with severe poverty to begin with. Um, So, you know, a third of the Ethiopian population lives on less than $2 a day. And you're dealing with this kind of stuff already. And then you add on top of it flooding, which decimates the crops that survived the last uh, round of locust and COVID-19. So a lot of Uh, difficult situations facing the Ethiopians and Compassion International is doing what they can to try to meet some of those needs. They work through the indigenous church and uh, come alongside to kind of um, uh, add infrastructure for a local community, and it comes through the local church so that the church can be the hands and feet of Christ. Um, So there's the gospel opportunity there, the ministry opportunity, and what they're doing through them uh, right now in Ethiopia is uh, providing Um, like the food and the medicines that are necessary uh, for those families that are connected to the Compassion International Program, which is why when they're saying we need kids to be sponsored, um, that it's so critical because the the families in Ethiopia are facing this kind of calamity. Um, In addition, there's a lot of uh, need for information on what do you do and where can you get help and all of that kind of stuff. And that is actually coming through a secondary arm of ministry in Ethiopia and Compassion International, and that's through the Council of Evangelical Christians, they've added a radio broadcast so you can get some information uh, about where to get uh, supplies and where to get help. And also because of the just the back to back kind of of catastrophe that is occurring there, um, people are we say this all the time. people are searching for hope. They need something to encourage them enough. Uh, basically to get through the next day, and um, that's what these broadcasts are trying to do. So they're um, they're speaking to the choir, and they're also speaking to people who are searching for hope. And in each of their broadcasts, they are calling people to repentance. They're calling people to prayer and fasting. They're also presenting the gospel in a way that um, encourages people, if you're searching for hope— get some answers, you know, contact us or whatever. Um, and then and then they're adding some of the additional programming to um, address kids' needs, so kid-friendly services, prayer and worship and that kind of thing. So they're trying to hit it from all different perspectives. Um, you know, now that we've outlined the difficulty of the, uh, the, I don't know what you want to call it, the disasters that Ethiopia uh, is facing, we want to we want to acknowledge the good work that Compassion International and ministries like them are doing in these areas. Also realizing that there are millions of Ethiopians who haven't yet accessed some of these things because they don't even know that this stuff exists. Um, so I think what Compassion is asking us to do is to be praying, be praying that the resources uh, uh, get to the hands that, that need them the most, get the to the hearts that need them the most, and that more people who have resources would become willing to share. Um, so they're just saying, you know, pray about it and ask God where he wants you to plug into this story. Um, a lot of people in the United States right now are facing some severe financial difficulties. Um, and, it, and, it, and we're not, we're not uh, saying that, that we're not having uh, difficulties, but we are still better resourced than most of the world. And when you look at the kinds of things that are happening around the world, we're just asking, um, you know, what what could God do through your five dollars if you just said yes.
0: We're talking with um Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. You can you can read more of uh of this particular story at mnnonline.org. You're looking for the headline Locust Disease and Floods Plague Ethiopia, all kinds of helpful information in the article as well as links to how you can help. Um let's talk uh let's talk Ruth about Joyce Lynn's family let's talk about Joyce Lynn let's talk about Mission Aviation uh fellowship and then let's also talk about the reality that the travel restrictions currently in place m- mean that her US family cannot attend her funeral in Indonesia.
2: Yeah well Joyce Lynn was a fairly new missionary uh with Mission Aviation Fellowship serving in Papua Indonesia and uh she <sighs> She was um, getting ready to deliver some supplies to a remote area uh, in those islands uh, on May 12th. And shortly after she took off, uh, she radioed a distress call and uh, her plane went down. Um, Unfortunately, she did not survive that crash. So MAF is mourning the loss of a staff member, of a colleague, of a close friend. She has, uh, she's a sister and a daughter um so her family is is also mourning her loss um and and the the covid nineteen restrictions uh on travel mean that even though this is something so final and so serious as as far as we see it uh you know and and this plane. Um, means that her family can't actually be uh, travel to Indonesia to be at her funeral. So there's a, a lot of difficulty as she's laid to rest and her family can't be there with her, um, of just needing to have some closure. Um, what they are saying is if you want to do something, um, that they are asking that people send, instead of flowers, uh, send donations to MAF so that other pilots can also be trained and so that they can shore up some of their, the uh, program for the staffing that needs uh, to occur in Papua. Um, and that this ministry will continue to thrive because this was Joyce's heart and passion. Keep in mind, this is not her first career. Uh, Joyce has, had a long career in other things. She had two degrees in engineering from MIT, 10 years in the Air Force and in private sector se- cybersecurity after that. And then she went to seminary. Um, and while she was in seminary, she discovered mission uh, missionary avi- aviation and went on a short-term trip with MAF to Papua, Indonesia, where she discovered that uh, not, that there's a, she scratched that itch, basically. She was looking for a way to be in ministry and, and MAF was where she wanted to be. So she, even though she had pilots ratings and she had um, all of those kinds of things going into it with a lot of experience, she still needed her instrument rating, a commercial pilot's license, and more training to meet MAF's standards. Um, and it was a long process to be able to do that. So, she spent uh, a year in language school and she spent a year getting those those uh, uh, standards met. And this was supposed to be her um, um, solo flight for delivering some of these um, supplies that were needed to remote areas. So we're talking COVID-19 tests and we're talking school supplies. And that's what she was delivering to uh, one of their um, uh, contact points in Papua. Um, given everything that has happened... Um, you can see the impact of uh the ministry on these these uh villages where maf has connection points um you can see that in that short time that joyce was uh serving with maf that she made an impact and it was the reason why she was getting up in the morning she was so excited to be part of what god was doing in people's hearts uh in these in these villages where gospel stuff hadn't actually reached some of these people um so she was excited to be part of that and um and that has never changed even though she is gone the the um the mission and vision of MAF continues and that's the thing that her family says they would want people to remember um so just all of these things it is tragedy and yet there's a celebration of life. There's a celebration of hope and of God's goodness in spite of the difficulty.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the the very fact that a person in the very prime of their life, uh, with as many opportunities as this young woman had, um, that she would commit herself to, you know, the service of the Lord and uh, and the extension of His grace to the least of these around the world, um, it is in itself a testimony. And so I want to encourage people to be not only thanking God for the life of Joyce Lynn, um, but be praying for her family and the extension of the ministry that um, that she loved, that she loved. So uh, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, Ruth and I are going to pivot to the Middle East. We're going to talk about what is going on in Lebanon. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. Just reminding everyone, I am talking to Ruth Kramer. Everything that she and I are talking about today, you can find on the Mission Network News website, which is MNN, that stands for Mission Network News, MNNOnline.org. So Jane, who has texted in, uh, which you can do during the show, uh, that's the answer to your question. MNNOnline.org is where you can find the locust uh, story about Ethiopia, as well as the um, uh, the story about Missionary Aviation Fellowship pilot Joyce Lynn and riots resuming in Lebanon. So, Ruth, uh, talk with us about what is happening in Lebanon.
2: Well, Lebanon is facing, again, multiple crises on different fronts. Um Right now, they're looking at a second wave of infections in uh, in the country, and they thought they were going to be okay to lift some of the lockdown issues. And so um, they went ahead and lifted that because uh, there is a significant percentage of the population that is vulnerable uh, because of the um, financial crisis that is in the country. Uh, People had trouble getting food to begin with. And with the lockdown being a total lockdown, um, that food crisis exacerbated exponentially. Um, so people were basically saying they would rather take their chances out in the street exposed to the virus than risk starvation. Um, so they had to choose, that, that that's the choice they had, um, risk you know getting infected or uh, die of starvation. And that's a terrible choice to have to make. Um, so when the lockdown, the original lockdown ended, um, the situation became... Um, a little more complicated because pe- so many people came out and wow. uh, attempted to uh, get to the markets and get food that uh, what you saw was a lack of social distancing and the in and the secondary wave of infection started spiking. Um, given that, the government uh, issued a second lockdown that was four days long. It had started uh, last Friday and ended on Monday. And then they were going to lift it again to see Um, where they were on on that whole situation. Uh, As of yesterday, the government's making another recommendation that the cabinet will be considering uh, tomorrow, and that is uh, to enter a second lockdown or a third lockdown, really, that will extend through June 7th. And that is what is starting the protests. People are in the streets saying we can't survive a second protest. We don't have the means to do this. And there's no social security net. There is no safety net. There aren't uh, organizations that are really out there um, with the kinds of resources that we might see in the United States. The groups that are responding to those physical needs, those immediate physical needs, are the groups that are connected to the churches and the ministries. Um, So partners uh, with us would be like uh, Horizons International and Triumphant Mercy Ministries. Uh, They're already working in the refugee camps, but they have a lot of uh, personnel and networks within uh, the country itself and throughout Lebanon, uh, throughout Beirut, I should say. So they have some better access to networks that can distribute goods. If and when they are able to get them, uh, and that's the that's the difficulty there. With the financial crisis, the inflation rate has uh, skyrocketed, and it makes getting foods or uh, just your basic supplies extremely difficult. So be praying for the ministries that are trying to be the hands and feet of Christ in this time. Um, you know, we we came out of uh, a, a period of unrest with uh, with Lebanon, and we saw that. Um, during those protests that were that started in the fall, um, that there was a spiritual revival that came about as a result. And in Lebanon, uh, Christianity can be open. Uh, it's not one of those areas in the Middle East that is uh, where the church is underground. So there were prayer tents being erected. There were people who were you know, entering the churches and saying, I need to know a little bit more about this hope that you guys are talking about, the hope of the gospel. Who is this Jesus Christ? And so you saw a, a big spike in, in a wave of ministry uh, coming out of those protests, and then we hit COVID-19. And so there's all of these these new believers who are um, seeking discipleship, and a lot of the ministries have had to kind of transition into those online ministries that we keep talking about, um, and the small groups through WhatsApp and things like that, um, as a result of uh, some of the things that are happening through the lockdowns and the isolation. Um, and And there's still great need that is coming out. Um, and really, when you talk to someone from Lebanon and say, you know, what's going on there and what can we do for you? They will always come back first and foremost. Pray for Lebanon. Ruth, um, other headlines that
0: people might be reading related to Lebanon include uh, the the very real threat of war with Israel over over Hezbollah and um we're even just reading this morning that um sudanese nationals seeking to pass from lebanon into israel to uh to do no good um have been apprehended and uh and new tunnels uh under the border have been um have been identified so i do think that when we talk about the challenges that lebanon faces you know an overwhelming number of refugees that they have uh, that they have received uh, by grace through faith, right? I mean, they have been they have been very very gracious uh, in terms of their reception of refugees, uh, people displaced by war. Um, but now they face not only COVID nineteen but um, but famine. I mean, the very real you know prospect of famine. Um, and in the midst of all of that, we have bad actors like Hezbollah. Um, and so I just think that in terms of a place in the world where we need to be paying really close attention, Lebanon probably rises uh, on the list. And, um, and probably will not get the kind of, of secular media coverage um, that it is going to deserve. So thank you at Mission Network News for covering this, for helping us understand what's happening on the ground, and for connecting us with Christians who are deployed in these places around the world um, where, you know, precious people are seeking to uh, live today. So, Ruth Kramer, thank you so much. I'm going to direct people to um, more articles at MNNOnline.org, particularly one related to the Navajo Nation, which has now surpassed New York state in terms of the rate of coronavirus infection. Ruth and I talked about that on a prior in a prior conversation, but the update posted at mnnonline.org is really important. Ruth, thanks again for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having us. Have a blessed day.
0: We'll be right back. All right, so many headlines that we um, could still open up this morning. Uh, and so let me just be sure that I also tell you uh, what's going on in Yemen. Real crisis there. Um, obviously, the, the war has been ongoing. But the coronavirus, um, according to some news outlets, threatens to actually lead to the point where you and I would no longer see Yemen on a map. Um, and that um, the kind of, of shift that we're going to be in globally in terms of the survival of, of actual nation states, is a conversation we have not had, but one that we um, must consider. You know, in different times over the course of human history, the global map has been redrawn. Um, it has not happened significantly in our lifetime, except for um, some, you know, some very discrete places maybe in Africa. But it is happening now, um, and so let's be, let's be thinking about that. Let's be considering that. What does, it, what does it look like and what does it mean to live in a day and a time when the literal lines of geography, the borders of nation states and their names, is likely to change? Um, how do I read scripture in light of the fact that the nations mentioned therein, many of them no longer exist? Um, some of them do, and so just give that some consideration. Obviously, we live in a nation whose name does not appear in the scriptures of the Old or New Testaments. Um, and nations rise and fall, and we recognize that. And so let us be cognizant of that reality and also recognize that the kingdom of heaven persists forever. And that is, uh, that is the kingdom of which we are first citizens. All right, we got another hour up next.